And we're live. Wonderful. Okay. okay. See, not too painful. No, it's going well so far. No, we're all right. <laughs> all right. Now I'm good to go too. Once I get uh, the better equipment, I won't have to jump back and forth mm -hmm. to make it happen. Lorraine, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be able to come this week. So <laughs> really to my delight. So uh, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and um, what's your academic background? Okay, for sure. So my name is Lorraine Smith-McDonald, or just Lorraine. Lorraine. Um, my uh, academic background is a bit interesting, actually. So um, I'm currently a doctoral candidate in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary. Um, and what that really means is that I'm working on my PhD and I've passed the preliminary exams. Um, in terms of my previous background, um, I actually started training um, as a chaplain a long time really? ago. Yeah, so my original training is actually in chaplaincy. Um, and I had actually intended to become a military chaplain. Um, and so um, in a long, complicated story, I kind of accidentally, purposefully, as I call it, kind of stumbled into the military and veteran world. Um, and so I started my training actually as a chaplain. I have an a undergrad degree in philosophy and ethics, which most people would probably make fun of, but I have actually found to be extremely useful, um, particularly um, in my career. And then when in, I did a Master's of Divinity, which is a four-year program, I did it at uh, St. Augustine, so at the Toronto School of Theology. And at that time, as I said, I was actually training with the intention of actually going into military chaplaincy. That in okay. itself is a long story, so we can maybe pick up on that in a second. Um, it didn't end up happening, again, for another long story, which we can also pick up on. Um, and so I kind of wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I had written a master's thesis, particularly on, um, at the time, moral injury and post-traumatic guilt. Um, and I had done it because even though I hadn't become a chaplain, a lot of my um, classmates had gone into the reserve program. And I had a lot of connections at the time with the Canadian Armed Forces. And so um, this is probably around sort of 2000, starting in 2007 and going into 2010. And so there was obviously a lot of interest in terms of um, troop morale, troops were deployed to Afghanistan. So there was kind of a Canadian consciousness and then also kind of a um, consciousness in terms of the fact that, you know, with colleagues who had gone and done the reserve program and who were serving um, over the summers and then in their uh, reserve units, um, I certainly heard a lot of discussions about some of the challenges that, that um, Padres were facing in terms of troops coming home and um, weren't doing well and trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, so I wrote that thesis and was a little bit lost with my life. So, um, I wanted to go back and do some more clinical training. Um, and so I did a second MA in, uh, psychotherapy and, um, became a certified counselor or a counseling therapist and sort of moved into the mental health world for a little while. Um, and then I was offered the, offered the opportunity to come do uh, a doctoral degree. Okay. And so when I was put in that position, they said, well, what do you think you want to, you know, that's always the big question. What do you want to do? What, do you, what would you like to research? And, you know, I had sort of tentatively thought of a different, a bunch of different ideas, but really I think on my heart was really the idea that I wanted to go back and continue research with this population and continue to do more work in that area. Cause I really felt like we, we were still struggling, you know, that there was still more that we could do and, and greater understanding. And so, so what's the pull for you towards the military in general? Because that's that seems to be the common theme. Yeah, there's a military core there. Why? Um, I think because I had always I had a huge respect for it. My grandfather's had served in the wars, 
um, you know, traditional kind of great grandfathers, great uncles, all those kind of things, you know, mm-hmm. the traditional. Um, and I had actually always intended to go into the military, actually. Um, so I think most girls usually have posters of, uh, this, this dates me here, but you know, the Backstreet Boys and those <laughs> kind of things. Um, and I had posters of, you know, um, F-18s and really? guns and yeah, I was, I was a bit odd that way. I don't think my parents were like, mm, we're not quite sure about this one. Um, so and, you were thinking Air Force back then? Um, actually I was thinking probably infantry, <laughs> but I really like things that go fast. So, um, <laughs> so I was like, Ooh, maybe, um, unfortunately I got so really bad eyes. So why, I knew. Why were you thinking infantry as a, as a lady? Because um, that's a tough go. It I, is I, a super tough go. I had just to share with you when I uh, got to the third battalion, I never got to meet her, mm-hmm. uh, but the first one was there. Okay. And uh, we just crossed paths. Okay. You know, uh, don't don't know if I ever met her, but um, it was it was interesting. Even back then in '92, there was, and she had just finished her three years and got out. There was the feedback from you know. The uh, uh, fr- from the guys, the actual mm-hmm. what what people were saying was really a split. Uh, they had some people that were, oh, it's mm-hmm. infantry man, not infantry woman, mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. But all in all, the majority they were like, "Shut up!" Mm-hmm. She did her job. She kept up. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Mm-hmm. And and it was a, a defend defense of her. This is ninety two. Oh wow. And uh, so when I read the um, biography of the lady that uh, was the first infantry officer with the mm-hmm. Van Dues, mm-hmm. you know, and the horrible time she had, I said, well, that's because it was with the Van Dues. You know, mm-hmm. maybe if it was with the Royals or the Patricias, mm-hmm. it would have been an easier go. Uh, but it would have been more respect there. But um, uh, the, the, the struggle of anybody mm-hmm. to, to make it through uh, there was 18 people on my battle school course, only five graduated. And that's kind of normal, you know, and it's usually bigger numbers. Yeah. We were uh, the scraps from holding platoon that mm-hmm. uh, that went through. But you hear about started with 30, graduated with 10. Absolutely. You know, um, and, and the people that don't make it, sometimes they are permanently uh, injured physically because mm-hmm. they just, they, it's tough training. Yeah, absolutely. So why infantry for you? Okay, like, why would you well, even consider that silliness? <laughs> I, well, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have made it, but um, I actually, what I really wanted to do was be on the ground. And um, I think because, and I wanted to do peacekeeping. And so okay. I wanted to go out and I wanted to serve. Um, I wanted to serve my country and I, I wanted to, I wanted to do the real stuff. I didn't, I didn't want to be in an office. I didn't want to be I didn't want to be the girl who was pushing the paper around. I wanted to to do the job. Um, yeah, it didn't. And so, actually, the intention for me was to go to RMC and and to go and get my training and um, become, you know, but basically to do it through, with the intention of you know getting my boots on the ground shortly thereafterwards. Um, so it didn't end up happening um, for a variety of reasons, um, but that was what I had always wanted to do. And so. When that didn't um, end up coming through, I actually was quite lost for quite some time and kind of wandered around and, you know, worked and did a whole bunch of ridiculous school programs that you do. I started in Celtic studies and my parents were like, really, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Both of my parents were scientists as well. So they were like, uh, is this like basket weaving? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but I quickly realized there was no future in that. Um, and so, you know, I had kind of given up on the military, to be totally honest. I kind of thought, well, I'm not, it's not going to happen for me. And so... I need to figure something else out. And so I ended up getting drawn to kind of a similar theme. I got drawn to ministry. 
Okay. Uh, so going into the church and, and doing Christian ministry. Um, and so that's how I kind of ended up. So I switched programs and I did the necessary undergraduate degree to get into the graduate program, which is the MDiv. Um, and so I had kind of, you know, it was really funny. I kind of given up and then all of a sudden, totally unexpectedly, um, I needed a job, the usual story. I need job. I need yeah, money. Those are, handy. those are handy. As a student, you need money. And so I was in the process of trying to figure out what I was going to do one summer. Um, and through a colleague of my sister's said, oh, you know, um, the military always hires um, civilians or can hire civilians to do chaplaincy work with the cadets. Would your sister have any interest? And I was like, I have no idea. I don't know, but it paid well. And yeah, I said, why not? why not? Sure. So I ended up at CFB Gagetown at uh, Camp Argonaut. Um, in 2007. Okay. Um, at the time the troops were deployed to Afghanistan, they actually were, uh, they came home three weeks before my contract ended. Um, and so suddenly here I was, I found myself back in the military world, except with chaplaincy. So I was, right. I was a padre or as they called me, the madre, <laughs> <laughs> um, for the cadets. Um, but because a lot of our, um, young people had family that was either deployed or associated, you know, we had a lot of kind of um, either a parent was part of the troops or, um, uncle was, you know, there was a lot of family connections. We ended up working quite closely with a lot of the reg force chaplains because there were a couple, unfortunately, casualties, um, which was a whole new experience for me kind of going through that. I had actually the son of a really good friend of mine. Um, he was actually, uh, deployed. I can't remember which unit he was in. Um, and so, you know, I remember the first time that we got notification that there had been a death overseas and I remember just having this split moment going, oh my God, I totally hope it's not Tosh, you know, like, cause I don't want to have to call Steven and say, your son is dead. Um, cause I had said, you know, if it's Tosh so-and-so and I won't say the last name, please, mm -hmm. please contact me. You know, I know his father very well. I would want to do it. I don't want another chaplain to make that phone call. So it was a totally surreal experience. So long story short, here I am back in kind of the military world as a civilian cadet chaplain. So certainly not pretending by any stretch that I, I lived in the military world other than I ate really bad food and didn't know how to put a uniform on. So <laughs> I was constantly getting shouted at for getting my hands in the pockets, you know, stop putting your hands in your pockets. Yeah. Your Yankee gloves. Yeah. So, um, but I, I really loved it. And so that's how, when I came home, I thought, no, I actually think I, this is where I belong. And so I had made that intention to finish my MDiv, go into chaplaincy, um, and applied the next year for the reserve program, got accepted. And then unfortunately, I just had some health conditions that um, didn't allow me to get through the full recruiting process. I was like literally going to get on the bus to go to uh, the RESO training. Um, and they're like, no, stop. You can't go. Um, oh, man. Your file's in Ottawa, and we don't know what's happening. So I spent the summer, unfortunately, at home um, going, mm, what's happening? And then eventually they just said no. Um, so I think my file is probably still on someone's desk in Ottawa in between chaplaincy and, uh, recruiting chance you might end up in the military. I'm not really sure. Is um, psychologist even uh, trade within the military. Um, I, it, it is, it is. Okay. Um, so I think if I was to do that, I probably would go back and uh, actually pick up my chaplaincy roots. Um, so I didn't end up doing that. And then, as I said, long story short, short, I ended up back here and I realized, actually the heart of what I wanted to do was continue to, to serve this population. And so I realized, you know, just because I can't go put on the uniform um, that way, it doesn't mean that I can't, I, I can't, I still can't serve. And so 
I really wanted to go back and and pick up where I left off in some ways with my MDiv and, and the research that I was doing there. So how you and I uh, connected was through the OSI clinic. You have a poster on the wall there yes. saying, hey, you want to be a guinea pig? Yes, And <laughs> I, said, I, think, I said, oink, oink, I'll be one. And uh, we met and, and had an interview. Now, you've had how many interviews with veterans now? I've had um, 20, 20 interviews. 20 interviews. Yes. So I'm so wow. grateful. I loved your email. I got this email from Mark the first time, and all it said is, I'm in. And I was like, <laughs> this is brilliant. You know, like that, how more military can you get? You know, don't waste words. Just, no, hello, did that, just, I'm in. And I was so grateful when you did that and, and being able to talk. Now, when you were sitting down with 20 interviews yes. and uh, God only knows some of the stories that you would have got, um, was it difficult for you to hear some of the stories? Was it, did, did you have any surprises there? You know, I would say yes and no. And I don't want to sound like I'm kind of walking both sides of the line. Um, I think because, you know, I have worked in a chaplaincy capacity uh, I spent a couple of years working at a civilian hospital. Um, and then I've also practiced as a therapist for the last three and a half, almost four years. Um, and so, you know, I've heard some pretty horrific things, right? And I can certainly remember those clients that stand out, right. even on a civilian side where you just think, oh, wow, I got to hold it together here. Um, so I don't think I was as shocked as I think someone who's never had that experience. I can imagine mm -hmm. if you've never heard something completely horrific before I think it would floor you but that being said I think there were times yeah that even even for myself um it wasn't in the sense of like shock and horror and whatever I just remember feeling in a couple of the interviews when you know guys would be sharing what they went through just this profound sense of it just broke my heart for lack of a better word like I really felt the pain of it and you know there's one gentleman in particular um he was a little bit older so he didn't quite qualify for the study but I didn't, but he still wanted to really share with me some of his experiences. And he, I think he really wanted me to know how difficult um, his life was. And I've never said no. I've sometimes had to say, you know, it you know, might not quite fit with my study, but I always take it as data, right? Every story right. has something to add to what I'm trying to do. Um, and, you know, here's this, you know, quite, quite elderly gentleman, actually. And that was part of the reason was because he kind of fits more of the end of life kind of um, situation. But, and, you know, he's telling me, and these very, very intimate details about his first deployment, which was to the Congo in 1953. Oh. Um, and so, you know, all he, the African tours are always oh, just the worst. Oh, it's just, um, and I'm, I'm not going to kind of go into it because I don't want to um, no. trigger anyone here, but you can kind of fill in the blank. And it was, I have to say that, and there was one other gentleman who actually was part of my study, um, who had worked in uh, special forces and had gotten captured in Bosnia um, and had been tortured, um, who shared a little bit with me about that. And I think those were probably the two worst in, in that sense, just because it was just so unbelievably horrific and evil what had to take place and what did take place to, to them. Um, and as I said, it was just that sense of, like I remember with the, the the older gentleman who was telling me about his experience in the Congo, like I generally have a lot to say. I'm a good listener. I'm a pretty good therapist, I think. <laughs> I'm a pretty good chaplain, I always say. Like not so brilliant on the physical side. Like don't have a heart attack, but if you want to talk about your feelings, I'm really good with those. <laughs> um, and I just remember being totally, I couldn't say anything. I didn't even know what to say. And I remember I just said to him, like, I'm so sorry and just gave him this huge hug, which 
I don't know if that crossed boundary lines or not, but I just, I think what I wanted him to know was that I saw and felt his pain and that he mm-hmm. was not alone in that experience and that um, someone else could, I think, hold that space for him. One of the barriers that some of us put up, and I, I hear it at uh, the OSI clinic, people that have uh, dealt with it directly, and I've had to deal with it directly myself, is veterans being douchebags to each other mm. and in different ways. I've had... Um, uh, a couple of times, uh, but one guy in particular is at a skydive center and a guy that I kind of half recognized, mm. said, Hey, you know, mm. you served and blah, blah, blah. And goes, and I said something to the tune of, I'm a veteran too. Mm. He goes, no, you were in the Balkans. I was in Afghanistan. I'm a real veteran. Wow. And I went, huh, oh. how about that? <laughs> All right. Okay. Didn't I, know. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, uh, w- interesting that that anybody would do that and um but we can be douches to each other and the the other dividing line is those that were deployed and Mm -hmm. those that were not and and i had that same dividing line Mm -hmm. for for a while because i was being the douchebag veteran Mm -hmm. um but there's something about just the training by itself especially combat arms Mm -hmm. that uh, can leave a stamp on you that makes it difficult to function in the world uh, as, as a result, not sure where I was going with that. That's okay. That's just okay. I can pick up on that, and sure. and I think that was one of the things that really struck me was, um, you know, when I came into my research, which was really, I mean, I tried to keep it as open as possible. So my research was really to listen to veterans and have them um, come up with their own model of the lived experience. So not medically oriented, but just to say, when you tell me about your experience of what it's meant to live with this, with this operational stress injury or this PTSD or whatever the particular um, injury is, you tell me what the lived experience is like. Um, and so when I came in, I think I was very, still very mental health focused, you know, obviously that was what I was kind of looking for. And what really struck me very, very early on in my interviews, I would say probably starting with interview number one was, um, predominantly all of my participants spoke so much about that, that experience of being militarily processed. And so Mm -hmm. there was one gentleman in interview number three. So again, very early who, who said explicitly to me, you know, my soul has been seared with being military, you know, like this hasn't just, this isn't just kind of like a lifestyle, like this has ultimately changed kind of who I am and um, the way that I respond. I call it a stamp. Okay. Yeah. And um, there's no going back, Mm -hmm. not fully, you know, it will always, always be a part of you. And would you say that a big part of that is because we're so damn young brain isn't even formed till you're 25. So those neural pathways are more or less set in stone uh, during your formative years. Is that is that why it's just there doesn't seem to be any going back? I I, I don't know explicitly, um, and I and, and I know there's a whole debate around this, but I definitely would say I mean I think the more we know about the brain, we definitely know that. Um, yes, you know you're quite young. You're still making those formations. I think the other thing that we have to think about is the fact that. Um, we have spent probably 2,000, 5,000 since the first, you know, caveman took a rock and smacked another guy with a rock. We've spent yeah. 5,000 years perfecting really the technique of creating soldiers. You know, if you even look back at kind of the way that Rome does it, uh, Rome did it. I mean, it was quite similar, right? We, we, we've mastered the ability to strip away kind of some of that um, consciousness 
and have really figured out how to kind of play in that space and how to make you do things. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's extraordinary that the programming is so strong that it almost breaks your internal will. Um, and that's one of the things that I um, have put forward in my theory is that um, there's a struggle there, right? Because when we think about something like moral injury or we think about, you know, um, a lot of my soldiers have shared that, you know, they've done things that they haven't really wanted to do, but they did it anyways, whether that's because they had to in the sense of having to get the mission completed. So mission over morals, or even at times, just the fact that things were so quick, things were so, things were happening so fast that there really wasn't that time for conscious thought. And so mm -hmm. their body just took over and did it. And in some ways, I, I can understand why we do that. That is important. If you had someone like me, I would probably spend, you know, I get shot in two minutes, right? Because I'm, I'm a giant thinker, right? Like, I am the most useless person ever in a combat zone. We, um, uh, one of the mantras, especially in combat arms, is that hesitation kills. And that gets put into you. So you don't hesitate, you react. Or you die, or the next person next to you dies. Hesitation kills. But that Fs you up for real life absolutely, because hesitation is what you have to do mm -hmm. so that you can ponder and contemplate and react instead of, or respond instead of react. Mm -hmm. But it goes against our wiring mm -hmm. because hesitation kills. Mm -hmm. And if you have a problem, kill it. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't work well no. in the rest of the world. No, absolutely. Doesn't absolutely. work well. I've, um, it, it was pointed out to me with uh, one of the PTSD talks that I, that I did online that's on the channel um, to not leave out first responders. And so mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. Um, I keep finding with uh, open, because I'm so active in the veterans mm -hmm. community, um, people are opening up to me with their experiences and including first responders, police, mm -hmm. paramedics, fire. And they always trivialize their own mm -hmm. it's like well compared to what you saw as mm -hmm. a soldier it was nothing mm -hmm. and uh, those of us that were in the balkans will say that about the afghanistan well mm -hmm. you know afghanistan must have been much worse than mm -hmm. what we dealt dealt with and yet they hear the opposite yeah you know and um we we have a, a tendency to trivialize mm -hmm. our own and i was wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit about the different types of and you don't have to be a soldier mm -hmm. or first responder at all to be suffering from PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference in presentation or the difference in treatment for, say, a military slash first responder who's uh, suffering from operational stress injuries compared to a civilian with uh, PTSD? Mm -hmm. Or is it the same? Well, I think it's a really interesting question, and there's a huge debate um, about this. If you want to, so just to put this in context, when, uh, so the DSM, so that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is pretty much the Bible of mental health, which has, you know, all the classified mental illnesses. So when we were switching from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, because it gets updated kind of every few years, and okay. um, one of the big debates about the whole concept of PTSD in particular, well, there was a couple of debates. Um, and this has been kind of raging probably since the first time that a stress disorder got introduced into the DSM-1, which was shortly after Korea. It, it came out in number in DSM-2, got put back in quite strongly in the DSM-3, which was, of course, and that's the first time that you actually have the concept of PTSD. Um, interestingly, it lines up with um, shortly after Vietnam. So there's all kinds of discussion around that. Um, and so in some ways, military 
health has led the charge, I think, in this because it has been the most prominent. Obviously, seeing that come in the DSM three, the push to have, um, particularly in the United States, um, Vietnam veterans um, suffering to be recognized and to try and put some parameters around what is this thing that we're dealing with. Um, and so, if you look throughout the history, of course, we know that um, you know even in the Iliad, they're talking about PTSD symptomology, though they are using different language. So, long story short. Um, when you looked at the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, one of the largest discussions was, is military, particularly, is military um, PTSD different than civilian? Um, and there's really two sides. So those people that say, yes, absolutely. And actually, we need, we need to be clear about kind of um, what types of PTSD we're talking about. There are those that would say, no, actually, PTSD is PTSD. It doesn't really matter. I think one of the more interesting things that's come up most recently is that they're starting to show that when you go through a traumatic experience, one of the factors that seems to indicate whether or not you're going to have a, a struggle with it, in other words, it's going to be more challenging for people to um, process, accept, and overcome, is whether or not that trauma is person to person or person to something else. So specifically what they're saying is whether or not that trauma can get internalized as being, this is about me being victimized. So whether or not we personalize it. Um, and so traumas that happen sort of largely things like natural disasters, freak accidents, those types of um, events, as traumatic as they are, um, and we should not just, you know, diminish the trauma that people do experience in, in those effects, you know, mass flooding that we've seen or even, you know, the fires in Fort McMack. Um, but it seems like there's a slight difference in those in the sense that people don't necessarily take them as personal. In other words, this is not mm -hmm. a personal attack on me. However, if you go to the opposite extreme, um, we know traumas like particularly sexual traumas are profoundly problematic in terms of helping people overcome them because not only do they physically are they a violation of someone's personhood? There is also often, because unfortunately a lot of sexual abuse we know comes from um, people that they know, very rarely is it a total stranger. It is this sense of you purposefully chose me and did this to me. The betrayal. The betrayal. And so that piece I think is really interesting to think about. And I kind of think soldiers are kind of in the middle. And I one of the things I proposed- Well, as in, with, with family, the sense of betrayal is stronger because the expectation of trust and safety is, is higher. Absolutely. And within the military community, especially the army and especially combat arms and especially the infantry, um, the expectation of you have my back, I have your back mm -hmm. is higher. So when that doesn't happen by your own people, the moral injury is greater because the expectation of trust is higher. Absolutely. And it feels like you, you, you're doing this to me. And in mm -hmm. some ways, there is a, there's a legitimacy to potentially a legitimacy to that. So I think when, when we think about soldiers and the other soldiers or military personnel, I think the other challenge that um, they face is actually think around this whole question of kind of moral injury and how we address their PTSD. Um, and I call this um, very loosely, and I mean this in, in kind of the broadest sense, um, they're all also often both victim and victimizer at the same time. So what I mean by that is that obviously with the person who's been sexually abused, we kind of um, know in some ways um, kind of what 
how to frame them, the narrative that we want the person to get to or help them re-put their cells back together again. So obviously we want them to process out the trauma specifically. So that could be physiologically through somatic. It could be EMDR, PE. So that's prolonged exposure. So we want them to help them process out the trauma. Mm -hmm. And then we also want them to help create um, a narrative, a narrative that fits for them around that shattered sense of of selfhood. So I'm I'm not a victim or it wasn't um, I don't I don't need to be afraid for the rest of my life. I can be strong. It, happened, I can, it didn't happen because of me. me. It happened to, to me. me. It did, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of clear. I think the struggle sometimes with and, and this is even something that Oh, sorry, I apologize. No, no, no. And just make sure you don't get caught up. Yeah. <laughs> with that's come out of my research is I, I really feel for veterans because they can often be, as I said, both victim and victimizer at the same time. So, for example, you know, the story of um, a gentleman who lost his friend in Afghanistan to an IED, clearly victim, right? Mm -hmm. Truly, truly victim. And the guilt that he feels there. On the opposite hand, in the process of that, then they also got ambushed. And so suddenly they're in this firefight and then he has to kill a couple of people. Suddenly victim, victimizer in the sense that mm -hmm. now he's confused because he's he feels like, well, was that the right thing to do? Was I supposed to do that? And so- There's no putting the bullet back in the gun. Yeah. And so in this one moment, and it probably, I think probably took, I think he said like five minutes. So in five minutes, his whole world has been completely shaken upside down because not only- do we have to address the trauma of losing his friend in such a violent and, and horrific way and the guilt that he feels because he thought he had cleared the road of all of the IEDs. Mm -hmm. But then also, we also then have to process out that other experience of what was it like to then have to engage in a firefight and to then use that training that you were given. And as he said, I, I don't even remember it because I was, I was so lost. Like it was just autopilot. I just did it. I just, I, I, I just engaged. That's what I do. Um, and so this is not in any way to like, I do not think soldiers are these horrible. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying there's, there's a weird dialectic that I think soldiers have to wrestle with. And I have such compassion because we know it's difficult enough to sort out one narrative mm -hmm. and get people to process the trauma one way. But to then have to work in this space where sometimes you're working both ways, I think is really complicated. And I think that's, for me, that moral injury piece that we need to do better with. It never seems to be the event. It always seems to be what that event means to me. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not the problem. It's the implication of the problem. As a, for instance, um, uh, some of the horrors that, mm -hmm. uh, that were witnessed in the Balkans by most of us, it wasn't the rot the the charred corpse or whatever that horrendous scene was so much as what it meant that one person could do this to another person Absolutely. you know and uh, there's the <coughs> there's the odd uh, uh movie that actually hits it right i'm like oh they, they had a good, a good writer there mm -hmm. they must have actually talked to people that were there um there's a, a line out of the movie fury Okay. Where uh, uh, the new guy gets in and he's like, holy shit. And, and there's bombs and bullets and nobody else even notices. You don't even spill a coffee. And, um, uh, and he says, yeah, you'll, you'll get used to that soon enough. But what you don't get used to is the realization of what one person can do to another person. And, um, and also, when you have to, what you can do to another person. Absolutely. Um, not only will you see the, de the devil, 
you will see the devil inside yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is something that, uh, I, w there was also a line, um, with a clean Eastwood movie. And he's like, it's not the ones that I killed that I had to kill that bother me. It's mm -hmm. the ones that I killed and I didn't have to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if a person gets to that point mm -hmm. yeah. in, in, in that, uh, environment, which does happen to a lot of folks, Absolutely. you know, that's, that's, that's well beyond the coulda, shoulda, wouldas. Yeah. It's a, I know I didn't have to. Yeah. That, but I did anyway. Mm -hmm. And having to sit with that. Yeah. Have you run into that? I definitely have. Um, I definitely have. And I think in some ways that was a predominant theme throughout my research when I spoke with veterans. Um, I, what really sh struck me was that I think we do such a good job getting soldiers ready for, and I, I really mean this, um, for the physical the physical demands of combat you know the training that we put them through is just unbelievable by the way i also realized i'm hugely not resilient <laughs> i wouldn't as much as i would love to say oh i would have done so well in the infantry i would have spent five minutes and died you know um so it just and i mean that quite honestly like huge respect just unbelievable respect for the, the physical training that, that that we put our soldiers through the in some ways the mental toughness we create the resiliency I, I honestly, I am in just such profound awe um, of some of the things that people have done or have had to do just, you know, physiologically, just, you know, in terms of, you know, hiking all night, you got this pack and you're, then you got to go combat and you haven't slept and, and, and still holding it together. Like that is, that is great. Like ask my husband, if I don't sleep well, it's not a good day for anybody, you know? Yeah. So um, the hallucinations and, kick in around 36 hours okay. without sleep. Just, Good to know. Good yeah. to know. If you, ever, <laughs> if you ever want to know what it's like to have some kick-ass hallucinations, stay okay. away for about 36 hours and then they start to kick in. Awesome. Especially if you couple that with extreme physical labor. Okay. I, I'll take your word for it. It's true. Okay. Um, <laughs> And so just, we do such a good, just so getting back to the point, um, we do such a good job in terms of getting soldiers ready. And, and I think the training we do try and give you, I think is, is in some ways the best. We have honed it really well, mm -hmm. but I think the part that we are still falling down on profoundly is, is this side, is this side. We, I don't, and I, and you know, people could say, well, you can never completely get ready for everything you're going to see. And yes, that might be true, but but my goodness, we need to at least try. We need to at least help you have that conversation. And more specifically, if we can't get you prepped on the front end completely, then we certainly better have those supports in the back end, either during deployment or post-deployment or even post, you know, moving out of the military. Because uh, I, you know, those are some of the biggest challenges. And I think the parts that that my participants wanted to share the most with me, with me um were those stories, you know, one gentleman put it really bluntly. He said, you know, PTSD for me is being mad and sad. Um, and we had struggled a little bit in the interview up to that point. We were struggling to connect. And I think he was a bit frustrated with me, to be totally honest. Um, and, and then I just said to him, so I put down my stuff and I just said, tell me what you're mad and sad about. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was like this huge change in the room. And he got really quiet and he got a bit teary. And all of a sudden it was just, he just wanted to tell me these stories. Getting mentally ready, mentally combat ready for his own. When I did my tour, there were people that were on their second and third already in the Balkans. And it's no different, um, as I reflect, than kids teaching each other sex ed, mm -hmm. you know, um, learning from a playboy mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, and then learning from your older cousin or whoever and telling you the, about the birds and the bees. Mm -hmm. 
And it was it was like that. There was there was no official structure for preparing you for what you're about to see. We were on uh, QRF, which is Quick Reaction Force, um, for pretty much the whole tour. Which is so you're like you're ready to go the whole damn time. But we were uh, on call. Our QRF was on call for body recovery for about two weeks. So for two weeks, we're like, well. Come on, let's like if we got to do this horrible thing, let's do this horrible thing, because yeah. uh, some village was taken out, and we've got to take all these bodies from A to B. And I know lots of people that did it, and a lot of the people that were there on their second and third tour, they start telling you what that's like because they've mm -hmm. done it. And um, uh, so, but there was nothing official mm -hmm. on what to expect or what would be required of you. Um, just like kids learning sex ed from each other instead of from like some sort of process mm -hmm. for, for trying to understand the un something that cannot be understood. Yes. You know, like, uh, yeah, you take Vicks VapoRub and you put it on, on your top lip or mm -hmm. in your nose to, for the smell. Mm -hmm. And the smell is apparently so bad that uh, you have to burn your uniform after. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so you kind of got to prepare for that. You keep one in in a Ziploc bag mm -hmm. and, you know, ready. And then uh, after you're all done, because uh, the stink doesn't come mm -hmm. off. Things like that. Uh, you just learn it from each other before you even go. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there's just nothing that that gives you some sort of baseline to prepare you know, until you're in it and you're like, oh, okay, now we're in it. And it was like that for the tour. They tried to give you that, but we were new to the Balkans then. Mm -hmm. And we'd been a peacetime off uh, army for so long mm -hmm. that uh, there just was no way to formally get you, get you prepared. Yeah. You know, not really. Mm -hmm. uh, we trained our asses off prior mm -hmm. to the deployment, but nothing that would prepare you for actually being in a combat zone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As a, from what you've seen, is is there any mental health preparations now um, before people go over to help them adjust to that environment better? I well, I definitely know that that mental health has been more integrated in terms of trying mm -hmm. to get people ready. Um, I I know that the here in Canada, the Royal Canadian Chaplaincy Service um, is also taking up that call and is trying to get people um, more. Um, I guess, you know, spiritually, however you come to understand that for yourself more spiritually ready, because I think at the heart of a lot of what you end up seeing in combat, I think it, it challenges or questions, you know, the base of our humanity, you know, those kind of deep spiritual existential questions, you know, even if you're, you know, non-religious or don't necessarily believe in God, I think, as you said, you know, at the heart of it, it's this question of how could one human do this to another human? And and what does that mean? So I, I do think there is beginnings uh, of that. And I think people are trying to get that together. Um, I certainly know if you've ever heard Romeo Dallaire speak, mm -hmm. um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times. And um, that is his big call that, you know, we, we need to have, you know, a center that and we need to have preparation as much as you know we go and do physical fitness we need to almost have um spiritual fitness um and the u.s has certainly picked that up in in their five stars of uh of readiness spiritual fitness is one of those and really a big part of that is just having people think about how how like how are you going to make sense of of this for yourself you know what beliefs do you already carry in to this um you know what's your world orienting system um, how are you going to manage some of this? But I think we also need to be better for the back end as well, because I do think 
again, we can think about it all we want. And, and I'm extremely humble because I've never been there. And so I, I know I, I can never, I mean, I'm speaking from, from a, a civilian perspective, mm -hmm. but I think we need to do better on the back end. And what I can say is that I think in general, we do struggle with um, holding that space sometimes for people to work through those questions and helping people to work those, those questions, right? Those are fundamental questions. Um, and they can't be ignored and we can't push them under the rug. And they're not secondary to to other experiences. I think what the literature is starting to show um, is that those unresolved issues, um, whether it's anger, whether it's bitterness, whether it's resentment, whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, if those feelings are left unresolved, then um, we know that that is linked to uh, an intensity, sorry, uh, linked to um, an increase in duration, intensity, and severity of mental illness symptomology. And of course, the ultimate consequence, suicide. Suicide. Lots and lots of it. Absolutely. For me, at the heart of suicide, I think is, and I've, I've had to even see this in some of my participants, which again, you know, when you asked me, was I shocked? I was, I was surprised by how open people were about either the number of times they tried to commit suicide or their struggles with suicide and, and how, again, for me, how heartbreaking that is because at the heart for me personally, this is, this is just my personal opinion is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And what have, what have we as a society and as a community and as a military um, what have we done that we've left you in a space where you think there's no hope? Hopeless and pointless. Um, one of the challenges, especially if you've been in uh, a combat zone, there's nothing more intense. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you, you hear of guys doing high-risk activities, uh, the fast motorcycles, mm -hmm. uh, skydiving, 24 mm -hmm. jumps, um, trying to recreate that intensity, and you can't. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing that you can do. Skydiving gets fairly close. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a crazy environment. Uh, it's it's a wonderful thing, but nothing ever puts you back onto that edge again, mm -hmm. and that makes it feel pointless. Mm -hmm. Just life in general, because you'll just never. Uh, I guess that's why people get addicted to heroin. They mm -hmm. call it chasing the dragon. Yeah. Well, we chase the adrenaline dragon. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's this hollowness, this emptiness after, mm -hmm. and a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when you are a part of something that's big, and there's thousands of other soldiers that are there, and it's a giant, giant operation with the multi-million dollar equipment and everything, it just feels like you're a part of something huge mm -hmm. and purposeful. Yes. Whether it's right or wrong, mm -hmm. who cares? It's purposeful that it's big and it matters. And then you never, ever mm -hmm. find that again in your life. Uh, that creates a, a, a hollowness. Mm -hmm. So I, um, every now and then, get somebody tapping me on the shoulder and uh, asking me questions about PTSD, what is it, mm -hmm. and other veterans in particular. And there's a couple of first responders in my, in my mind that uh, – I think I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'm good, you know, but I can see through it. Uh, PTSD and OSIs create a blind spot. Would you, mm -hmm. would you agree that our self-awareness that the problem is ours, you know, that the world isn't a bunch of assholes. It's actually, <laughs> I'm the asshole. Do you find that that's a blind spot? I think so. I think, I think that's a, I would say in, in fairness, I think that's a general 
struggle. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's not, it's everyone, we'd all love it to be everyone else's problem. But I think, I, I do think, you know, I think the more mentally well you are, the harder it is to see mm -hmm. that for yourself. Um, I think I often wonder if that's because you're working so hard to just survive mm -hmm. and just hold it together that the mere inclination that it's it's you is just too much and so you 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 almost can't accept it that, it, that it's you because we got a hell of a habit of destroying marriages mm -hmm. we're really good at that <laughs> uh, shock and awe what are some of the um red flags that uh, we might be able to see in our own lives that that have us go oh oh maybe there's an operational link there mm -hmm. and maybe i should go, go to just talk to somebody right. what are some of the flags that would uh, that maybe we can see i think relationships are probably the first place that you can start to see the flags i think mm -hmm. you need to look around you um and well first of all look at who is what relationships are still in your life so even looking at do you have any relationships in your life um if they are who are they with did you lose anyone and if you did, who, who were they? And were they important to you previously? Um, I think as hard as it is, and I can, I can absolutely totally appreciate this, especially as I said, when you're struggling, when you, when you, when it feels like you're drowning, um, but listening to what is, what is the general theme of what everyone's telling me? Mm -hmm. um, there is, you know, uh, my interview number three, you know, shared very much similar experience, you know, was really on a downhill slide. And it was this really old, mean, crusty guy that he was working for who he even he was like, wow, this guy's mean. Yeah. And one day, after losing his mind at, um, I think he was a trainee, you know, he sort of, the trainee had done something wrong. It was in a mechanic shop. Um, and as he said, you know, in the military screaming at your underling for 15 minutes is totally acceptable. In the civilian world, not so much. So not he, so much. Not so much. So he kind of lost his mind on this poor young trainee because he didn't put the wheel on properly. I don't, I don't remember the details. Not important. The point is, what he, well, the reason he shared it with me is he thought it was fine. He thought it was like, this is totally normal. And then this really old crusty boss of his came out to him and said, wow, dude, you got to tone it down. And he said that moment of having somebody that I thought, wow, you know, kind of cat, you know, pot kettle kind of moment, like yeah. having someone that I was like, whoa, what's your problem? Come to me and say, dude, you, you got to tone it down a little bit. Like you're a little bit vicious was, as he said, it wasn't the complete turning point, but it was a little bit like, whoa, that's kind of what everyone else is telling me. You got to tone it down. So I think looking at your relationships, so looking at which ones do you have? First, do you have any? Are you isolating yourself? Are you isolating yourself? Do you mm -hmm. have any? With whom do you have those relationships? Did you lose any relationships? What is important? And kind of what is the tone of people, um, you know, in general? And, and I know it can be hard. So that last point might be a little challenging in terms of picking up on, but in general, what are, what are people saying? Because I think especially for soldiers, one of the things that I have learned from, from my participants is that physical pain, physical uncomfortableness. That's okay. That's totally fine. Yeah, you guys are all good. You know, yeah. like he's like, I was sleeping in my car. I was totally fine. Everyone else was like <laughs> freaking out. And he's like, it's covered. It's warm. I'm not on the ground. I was I on a quad trip with a bunch of realtors uh, uh, years ago. And um, they all got like, you know, the, their fifth wheels and motor home <laughs> and everything else. And I had the back of my truck with a cot and yeah. a tarp. 
<laughs> and I thought I was like pretty good. I'm high, I'm dry, and a, and a storm was coming in, and everybody's like, "Mark, you're not really." I'm like, "Dude, this is actually pretty Gucci." <laughs> like, you know, this is the Soldiers Hilton. Here. Exactly. And they're just like, "Oh my god!" They're like, I don't know, just like I'm fine. Um, so I think the relationships is important. I think also picking up on um, kind of some of those spiritual things, you know, that we talked about, I think asking yourself, am I hollow? Am I empty? Do I feel hopeless? Have I lost a sense of meaning and purpose? Are those depression symptoms as well? And and the relationship between depression and PTSD, it seems like you can't really have one without the other. Um, I think you can. Well, statistically, you can. You can't have one over the other. Um, soldier populations, it seems like there is a lot more comorbidity between PTSD mm-hmm. and depression. Um, I also think there's, again, that overlap with sort of, I think, of PTSD, depression, and moral injury, right? So, you know, um, are you angry, too? Are you angry? The uh, the moral injury, um, as I, when we originally met and we did an interview, I talked about our tour, Roto 4, on the Croatian side was famous among our mm-hmm. little circle um, for moral injury because yeah. of the of the leadership. Um, how we were treated by our own leaders was unbelievable. And we 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 um, get around the campfire to this day and the anger matter of fact I just made a post on mm-hmm. Facebook on one of our pages and um, mentioned a name or two. Mm. And the feedback is like, oh, God, I thought I was finally good. Mm-hmm. And then you had to bring up that name. And now I'm just wrecked for the next week. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so mad. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something about that moral injury that just doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, what what do you have to say about the impact of moral injuries? Like, uh, and, and, and how do you use that to to spot it in yourself like oh this is actually something i need to work through well um so moral injury in terms of um a topic is relatively new from a psychological perspective i would oh. say uh, it's probably it's come up in the last probably 10 10 years in terms of a, being an accepted concept I would say um, before that, I think it just kind of got plopped into sort of spirituality and religion. I think if we mm. look historically, that's kind of where we would um, see it. It's very interesting when you look at some of the um, Aboriginal First Nations uh, tribes that would um, do purification rituals for their warriors coming home. Um you know, with the idea of sort of um, at that time casting out the demons before they were allowed to come back to the tribe. So there's some really interesting things that kind of come up historically, but not to get sidetracked too much on that. In terms of recognizing it for yourself, without copying out, I mean, I think it's different for everyone because each Mm -hmm. of their experiences is going to be different. My rule of thumb for myself as a clinician when I'm I'm working um, is the things that bother me 24 hours. So I, I really follow um, a Buddhist rule, which is that you have 24 hours to either let something out or it'll become some stuck within you. And so I really follow that rule as a clinician and as a person. So I have 24 hours. Let's say the guy cuts me off, you know, on traffic this morning, I'm raging. Um, I have 24 hours to do something with that rage or it gets stuck according to a Buddhist, a uh, Buddhist rule. And, and I tend to follow that for myself. So I think about it in terms of I need to get either get rid of this, I need to let it go, I need to, you know, I need to vent it out and be like, oh my gosh, you won't believe what happened to me, but da, 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 da. Um, which then is usually followed with um, 
what I'm trying to work on for myself, which is forgiveness practices saying, okay, this happened, but I can forgive you. Not in the sense that I can say what you did was okay. It was dangerous. It was stupid, but I'm not going to hold on to that anger. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go for myself. I've had a, a few people reaching out to me about, um, they're just barely hanging on and because they've haven't put down this and they haven't mm. put down that and, and the bitterness and the, and the hanging on to, uh, the negativity, which brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about and ask you about, was uh, the portion of recovery and coping um, that is mindset. Mm -hmm. So as far as coping and recovery, can you talk a little bit about mindset and what it should be and the importance of it? Well, I think in terms of mindset, we definitely know that it, it influences so, so much. Um, and we know that there's the possibility for what we call post-traumatic growth, right? Like there is a way that is possible to, to heal and to grow from this experience. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily the, um, the death sentence in some ways that people see it as. Um, and I think this is a struggle across mental health, right? You know, the first time a client is, is formally diagnosed with whatever it is, it can absolutely feel like a life sentence, but it doesn't have to be. And I think part healing of happens. healing can happen. And I think there is something so amazing. And I have seen this, you know, in my own life and in my clinical work. Um, and I've seen it in my research, you know, moments of what I call grace, moments of just healing that come. And so I think mindset is really, really important. And I think part of that is having the mindset of what is it, what is it that you ultimately believe? Do you believe that this is going to be the end? Do you believe that you will forever be stuck here? Do you believe that there is no hope that you are going to, nothing is ever going to get better. It's going to just be as it is. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that mindset um, really is helped by and comes from living witnesses because I think when it's so dark, you know, when you're so lost and you don't see it, you need somebody else to come show you the light. And this is why I'm such a big believer in peer mentorship and having support because you need somebody when it's really, really dark and it's hard and you're barely holding on. You need that person to come who is the light and be the living testament, the, the visible witness of there is hope. And so having that mindset, I think, also comes from seeing because we're, we're tangible creatures. We need to see. We need to see that somebody else like me has found a way through, has, has managed to come out the other side. And yeah. I could, and that's uh, the strength of the peer support groups. Every, absolutely. Every other Tuesday, we're in a peer support group. Mine was yesterday. Mm. Tuesdays are always an ass kicker. <laughs> I, I'm in therapy at 9 in the morning for an hour. And then uh, the peer support group starts at 11. And I'm just been thrown through a wood chipper by the time I've gone through <laughs> both, you know, both of them. Um, it's, uh, but, but it's so important. Uh, in, in your studies, have you mm. uh, really looked at the effects of peer support groups and the effectiveness of them? Has that been a topic? I've sort of accidentally stumbled. I, I haven't really in the sense of it's not my area of specialization, um, but I've kind of accidentally stumbled into it because that peer support has come up so strongly in in all of my interviews and the importance of that and I, as i said what's really come out of that is that sense of you know we need visible tangible hope mm -hmm. and again i think going back to that mindset i think you know in some ways we we become what we think and so yes 
if you're constantly focused on the negative and, and I know this in my own life, right? Like I, I kind of feel like I should, you know, do confession, you know, that, you know, I, ha- I have my own struggles, you know, in my sure. own life in terms of that. Um, but the more you think about that, you know, in a silly way, for example, you know, being part of academia, it's long, it's a five-year program to get through your PhD. It's hard work. Um, there are some days where it's a real struggle. And the more you think about those struggles or the more you, you know, get together. And yes, I actually think venting and lamenting is quite helpful. But at some point too, if that's all you're kind of doing, then all you think about is, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Versus having a colleague say, okay, it's hard, but I'm going to pick you up on Sunday morning and we're going to go and we're going to get four hours of writing done. Do you have any favorite books on mindset that... uh... No, if you have any that you recommend, I'm always I, I'm always looking to learn. I mean, not not that I can specifically think of. If I think of anything, I'll I'll probably think about it in the car. In uh, our peer support group, one of the ones that uh, keeps coming up that I read years ago that I just love is the Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay. So the Four Agreements, uh, it's a Toltec wisdom. Uh, it, it's just so baseline and 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 simple, and easy to connect to and, and to relate to. So the four agreements with um, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz is a good one, and uh, and people actually tell me that, that my book that's mm. right there. Why not me? Available mm. on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that it is. I, I'm a firm believer that one of the reasons I was able to survive and and function um, periodically at a at a decent level was because I wrote that book. And in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, it was my own PTSD survival guide. Mm-hmm. I just didn't realize it at the time. But there's, um, and something I'd like you to to um, uh, to share and, and, and straighten me out mm-hmm. if I'm wrong. But um, I believe that there is two lines um, w- for recovery. There's coping and mm-hmm. then there's healing. Yes. And uh, they intermingle and, and, they, and they blend. But there's, um, I think it's helpful to, when you're looking at an activity mm-hmm. for dealing with it, mm-hmm. with dealing with OSIs and PTSD, that you re- identify, am I coping mm-hmm. or am I healing? Yes. Now, coping, I believe, makes room for healing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but uh, if all your focus is, is only on the coping mechanisms and you're not actually healing, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's going to be a slow, slow boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with that? I would. I would agree with that. I think there is a difference between, you know, coping and, and healing. I mean, other people have put it like surviving versus thriving. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a variety of terms that are often kind of um, bantered out. As I said, there's there's even, you know, clinically this whole idea of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth. So I think we are sort of moving into that space of sort of recognizing that there are those two things. Um and and th- the way I think about it is, I think coping can they are intermingled, right? It's, they're not straight lines, they're not parallel. No. They intersect into each other. And you know, some days just coping might be the best thing that you can do, and that's great. You know, mm-hmm. hang on to that. Um, but the way I think about it is, coping is sort of how do you manage those? Um, it's sort of like managing those conditions. You know, how are you managing the symptomology, for lack of a better word? So, you know, um, how are you managing? those triggering moments how are you managing today's a bad day i'm super anxious or today i'm struggling i have a lot of negative thoughts or today i'm feeling very low or i'm feeling very hopeless so for me coping is kind of like dealing with the symptoms and that's extremely powerful and as i said some days 
um, coping is like just ticking the box with coping is like amazing. And you should be extremely proud of yourself, right? There's so many armchair psychologists because uh, <laughs> I am involved with so many of the veteran Facebook groups. So I see these conversations that are shaking my damned head. Uh, what will just go for a walk in the woods? Mm -hmm. Would you fuck off? <laughs> uh, it's yeah. uh, um, uh, what works for one person might mm -hmm. not work for another. Yes. And what works for one person in one moment might not work for you in another moment. Yes. Would, would, you, would you agree? Absolutely. And I think this is why, you know, there's so many coping techniques, right? There's so, so, so many. And those are good, right? Because you need that variety because what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for the other. I mean, we have certain things that, um, you know, we can talk about in terms of, you know, managing thoughts or managing physiological symptomology or those kind of things. So there's, there's lots of things, but I think part of that healing is understanding. And this is where I think that deep work comes in that deep, deep um, work. Mm -hmm. How did you become wounded? What is at the core of that woundedness for yourself? And that's where that healing takes place is when you're able to identify um, again, just making this up, so bear with me here, but, um, you know, my woundedness came from just the complete shock or the complete lack of ability to make sense of the horror of humanity. You know, if that, you know what I'm trying to say, that's a much deeper wound, right? And so for, for me then the challenge is how are we going to help you heal that wound? And I think, um, for that wound specifically, you know, when it's about broken relation, when we look around and we say, I, I, I can no longer do relationships because I'm just, I'm just so, I'm so disappointed. I'm so angry with people, right? They've mm -hmm. failed me so utterly that I'm struggling so much. Then the hard work, the healing work then is how do we help you reestablish relationships? How can you be healed by other people's love for that woundedness? Because ultimately that's the only thing we can do, right? We can let in, and I think part of that is, is that it's holding that space and not rushing people, but holding that space to have that lament, to to have that grief, to have that pain acknowledged, but then working on a way to find out how can we begin to heal that that woundedness. So each of those that woundedness might might be completely different for different for all of us. But one of the surprises in my own journey is that um, through therapy and everything else is that it's not the event. It's what that event meant to you because of your entire life prior mm. to that event. Mm -hmm. You know, cause you are not what event that is not what makes us. We yeah. are a mosaic mm -hmm. of everything from birth to now. And uh, we are all of that. So, uh, if you have a particularly upsetting story from childhood, mm -hmm. then you go into the military, you know, there are uh, force amplifiers and yeah. compounding effects that uh, so that if, if you have two people uh, and I said this in one of uh, one of the videos that I did, um, how we can be douchey to mm -hmm. each other. And mm -hmm. I, I've just seen it again and again. Uh, there's a couple of people that had a good tour on our tour, Yeah. you know, and they said, well, what's, what the hell is your problem? Mm -hmm. He's like, dude, you're in the back of the storeroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, really? You know, first you had a good go. And um uh, then there's uh, others of us that um, did not have a good mm -hmm. tour. But even if you were a fire team partner and mm -hmm. you're side by each and you go through the exact same event and the event affects the one person, but not so much on the other person, it's because you're different people. Mm -hmm. So what happened prior to that event, mm -hmm. it creates your filter. Yeah. And, and, and that's how you, am I, mm -hmm. am I, uh, 
<laughs> Am I on track here? No, top I, my ear. No, we for sure. I mean, who we are is is hugely experienced, right? I mean, it. it I always I have I have three sisters, so I always look at my sisters and think, wow, how are we related? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, even though, yeah, I mean, some of the core of who we are probably is very similar, and that's absolutely influenced by you know how we grew up parents and really, just, just wired differently but then you yeah. know that's expressed very very differently you know how we each experience certain things in our life and certain traumas were very different depending on everything from you know our personality to the age to you know and so on so absolutely and i think that's the challenge is that um it can be a struggle to necessarily identify what those core aspects are because they're going to be different. And that's why it takes, I think time and it takes that hard work and it takes that therapeutic relationship um, to be able to not just with counselor or a therapist or, or whoever it is, but you know, with other people, because identifying what is that that is for you um, is, is challenging. And it's, I think it's the scariest work. It's the scariest work that, that we have to do in all of our lives is looking at sometimes those deep wounded experiencing experiences and ask ourselves, as you said, what is it, what is, what was it about this experience for me mm -hmm. that was what, so profoundly hurtful? What do you have to say about um, some of the people that put up walls? Um, oh, I, I tried to get to this one earlier and then I got sidetracked. Uh, a fellow at uh, the OSI clinic that said, well, I'm airborne and you were just infantry, so mm -hmm. you can't understand me. And, um, and you have that same sort of, you can't understand me because you didn't do what I did sort of mentality. And I've heard that about, uh, yeah, my therapist doesn't actually understand. And how important is it? Or like, what do you say to these people? Like from my perspective, I, I try to explain to them, like they don't have to understand what it's like. They only have to understand what, it, um, that it that, that it has an impact mm -hmm. and that it has like how would you delineate that like, how would you de deal with that or what would you say to these people i think i think it does matter i mean i do think having people who can understand our experience the most is is very powerful right and that's why i do support that that peer relationship right because um having someone who can understand intimately whether it's because you're a veteran or you're a survivor of sexual abuse or whatever it is is extremely powerful but i don't think and i have seen you know i have experienced that for sure when people mm -hmm. say well you don't know what my experience is like and i'll say absolutely i don't completely i can't right like i'm never going to be able to be a hundred percent in your skin right like mm -hmm. there that's always going to be a limitation by the fact but what i can do is I can do two things, hopefully, effectively as a therapist. One, I can show you that I care by listening as well as I can and being and as open as I can be. In other words, I'm going to keep asking, you know, I also often say to clients, you know, part of the reason I ask you a lot of questions is because I really want to understand more, right? And so this isn't me, you know, trying to be difficult. This is me saying, help me get closer help me get closer to this experience for you right mm -hmm. and I, yeah i might not be able to completely get over the bridge and you know we're on the same side but i can get i can get pretty darn close and the second thing that i can say for myself is i'm i'm going to work as hard as you are to tap into every everything that i have to give you so i can tap into all of my 
all of my feelings. I can tap into my sense of anger. I can tap into my sense of um, injustice. I can tap into my sense of disappointment and pain. And regardless of the experience of the veteran, what I would like them to understand is that uh, there's different modalities of therapy. Mm -hmm. And your therapist can be a guide through that modality. You can't take yourself through the modality, which is a process. Mm -hmm. But you can, regardless of what the trauma is, and you can go through ART or whatever mm -hmm. it is, and and you and you guide them through that modality and put them through that process that um, that does help and it takes the the foot off the gas pedal. What I try to explain to guys is that no, you're not going to get fixed, mm -hmm. but it's going to take the foot off the gas. Yes, it's going to go from unbearable to tolerable, mm -hmm. and then it's going to go from tolerable to much more mm -hmm. tolerable. You know, it's it, it scales. It's always going to be there. Yeah, uh, I, I believe. But it's it's just, um, will you be able to function in life without this uh, uh, being, the dark cloud would just be a little less dark. dark. For sure. You know, it's just more manageable and livable. And I think you bring up an interesting point too, um, that different modalities of trauma therapy are going to require different things, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously if you're doing um, a more kind of traditional talk or narrative therapy, then, then there's going to be a lot of, you know, that kind of, lots of talking, lots of deep questions, those kind of things. Um, but, you know, if you're doing something like prolonged exposure or art, it's going to be a different type of relationship because it's more of a process that you're working through. So it, it the relationship really depends on kind of where you're going. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, I think it's one of those, but and to sort of summarize your question in terms of, you know, what do you say to people who say, well, you don't understand my experience? I would say first, absolutely, I don't, right? I can't say as a civilian woman but, but to treat me you but, don't you don't have to but i was going to say so absolutely yeah. but to to treat you i don't have to completely what i have to do is be clinically competent and i think more importantly or since say more importantly actually being clinically competent is pretty much the key <laughs> but i would say equally equally importantly i would say my job is to show that is to be there and show up and show that i can care right that that you are more to me than just patient number whatever right like that i care about you and that i am here to do the work with you yeah um to support you in that and to offer you you know the, the most that i can offer you which is my clinical expertise has there been any big surprises working with veterans um any holy shit moments <laughs> i for for me the biggest surprise um probably was realizing how supportive and warm they are once you get past the initial like when I first started and um I came to Calgary some I'm originally from Ontario um so in my first year here I spent a lot of time trying to just you know meet people and work with organizations and just kind of you know you did a lot of the shaking the hands kissing the babies kind of you know <laughs> but I was really trying to get involved especially with a lot of local mm -hmm. Uh, veteran groups and say, you know, this is who I am and this is what I really want to do. And I really, you know, I'm here because I want veterans voices to be included in the clinical and academic literature. Um, I'm not here to just, you know, toot my own horn. I really, really want to listen to what veterans have to say. And, you know, of course I show up as me and veterans take one look at me and usually there was a lot of giggles and laughing, you know, and I was told just, you know, go screw myself in a variety of fun and interesting ways. Yeah. And, you know, I, it was a little bit, it was a little bit humbling at the beginning, for sure. Um, and I have to be totally honest. I honestly, when I started the project, I, you know, I started recruiting and I had no one for quite some time. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be an interesting PhD because I have like no one. Um, but then, you know, 
through those connections and I think constantly showing up and saying, you know, I care, I want to do this. Is, uh, I, I genuinely want to help. I'm not promising that I'm going to fix the world. I'm not going to fix veterans affairs. I'm not going to fix your OSI, but, but I want to help. I want to try and do my part. Um, it was amazing for me. And the biggest surprise was just how all of a sudden, I think when you, when I showed up and showed that I, I cared, um, just how committed those guys were to come out. One of the uh, purposes of this podcast, uh, and as we spoke about before, it's not the PTSD podcast. Mm -hmm. It's it's all kinds of different topics from real estate mm -hmm. to whatever. But for the veterans components and in the title lines, it's always going to be obvious that it's a PTSD talk. Um, it's the idea of having a force amplifier for peer support. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not a therapy replacement, but I'm thinking this might work as a peer support augment. Mm -hmm for when people are home and alone and they need a little um, connection time to, to, to explore and explore themselves that they can come to the podcast, pick mm -hmm. the episode and go through it. Um, when you uh, watch the, the first couple ones that I did, I did mm -hmm. uh, the 11 causes of PTSD, which I pulled right out of my ass. Mm -hmm. It's just based on my own observations of what I've seen and my own journey. Uh, um, was I off in left field on any of those 11? No, I don't, I think so. And I, I have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to closet, put bracket this by saying, you know, my experiences is, is, is more limited. I'm relatively new. Um, you know, uh, a lot of this I'm basing off the conversations that I have had. So, you know, I'm not a therapist who's worked 45 years in, in the field. So mm -hmm. let me just caveat that. But I would say no. Um, actually, what, you know, we had talked about those 11 causes previously about a year ago. And then when I, you know, reheard that podcast and especially because I am sort of getting to the point in, in my own research that's, you know, I'm, I'm putting my own theory together or, or it's not my theory. I guess it would be your theory. I'm putting the theory that veterans have proposed in terms of what that lived experience is about. Um, and I would say for for me, no. Um, I think part of it is that those those eleven causes. I think we have to be clear in the sense of, from from what veterans have shared with me, is that they're not causes in the sense of like A plus B. So I had this, mm -hmm. and therefore I got PTSD. Causes slash contributors. I almost see them more like events. I call them events that open the door. Mm -hmm. And I think really what they do is that those events, when they're unresolved when you go through an event, a particularly a traumatic event, and it's unresolved for you, or more especially when it begins to eat away at or disrupt or dysregulate or cause discongruence between especially who you thought you were, what you were doing, why you were doing it, and what the reality is, that's, that's very problematic, right? Because we're kind of humans are creatures. We, we like conformity. We like, we, you know, we like certainty. And so the way I think about it is it, it's, it kind of starts to open the space for this, this wave, this oscillation to start happening. And the more and more that that intensifies, particularly if you start to have more experiences that are unresolved or the intensity of that unresolution gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then at some point it feels like there's a, a tipping point. And then um, for a lot of my participants, that's when they said, you know, that's where th those formal diagnoses started to come in. So it's not necessarily, as I said, that it's like A plus B equals, you know, it's not like traumatic event, mm -hmm. therefore you're going to get PTSD. But I think what's so curious is that for me is that it opens, it opened the door for those. And I often wonder from my personal perspective, if that's because, as I said, it, it's, it really starts to build this discongruence 
in self and self unity. And one of the most interesting things that's come out of um, um, sociological and psychological theory around self, and this is a very contentious topic. So, you know, you could have lots of discussions about this, but this whole concept of whether or not we have a true self is very hot at the moment. But the reason I bring this up is that one of the, one of the biggest theories that is starting to move and starting to gain a lot of sort of empirical data is that when we lose our morals, that seems like the biggest reason that people would say that their self has changed. So a lot of this work is actually coming out of issues with like Alzheimer's and dementia, right? And so when people would say, well, I've lost my husband because he's no longer who he was. Right. The, the, so when, when researchers go and ask those spouses and say, well, what, it, what, it, what, is it, what is it about it? Is it because he doesn't have his memories? Yes, that seems to be problematic, but not hugely. Um, is it because he doesn't have his traditional personality traits, right? Like he used to be friendly and smiley and happy, and now he's grumpy and whatever. And they would say, no, not really. And what they discovered when they kept pushing and pushing and pushing, people would say, well, he's not the good man that he used to be. He's doing things that he never would have done before. Right. And so I find that so interesting um, looking from the veteran perspective, because I think if that's true, if the way that we define who we are at the core of who we are is this, this person, particularly this good person. And when we disrupt that, and I think anyone who's had a traumatic event that gets fundamentally disrupted. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't resolve that. I think I wonder if, and again, this is just, this is literally a hypothesis. I wonder if that's not the seed or the seat of what begins to start to unravel for people and who they are. And subsequently their mental and their physical and their, sorry, their mental, their emotional, their physical and their spiritual health starts to struggle as well. Mm -hmm. I don't well, know what you think well, about that, but there you well, go. Well, it's uh, like we were speaking in, in, in my simplistic way of looking at it. It's, um, a stamp that is left on you after you have seen the devil, mm -hmm. whether that's figurative or literal, it's irrelevant. It's the same. Um, once you've seen it in others, in the world and in yourself, that is something that, uh, <laughs> that leaves a hell of a stamp and has consequences that have to be managed and dealt with and, and overcome mm -hmm. at least to, to some degree. Yeah. But Lorraine, I think we're there. I think so. Thank you so much for doing this. I can uh, see that we would probably have um, a few more. <laughs> uh, would you be able to do this Absolutely. again? Absolutely. If people are interested, presuming you don't get like a million comments saying, oh, God, not the redhead again, yeah. please. <laughs> I would be delighted. Thank you so much, Mark. And well, thank you. And I, uh, this is going to help people. And uh, so we'll, we'll be sharing it for anybody that's watching. Um, make sure you share this on or for anybody that um, you know that has served and, and may or may be struggling, first responders as well, police, uh, paramedics, etc. But thank you for tuning in. And Lorraine, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. All righty. Okay. All the best. All righty. <laughs> now I have to physically go over here to end, <laughs> to end the broadcast.